What's up, people? I'm super excited to drop my first interview and guest on the pod. In keeping with my trailer and intro episode, I decided to invite Matt McManus on to revisit Michael Brooks' impact on left-wing thought, their mutual work debunking the new right, and their ideas on the next left or cosmopolitan socialism. Needless to say, we had a vast and sweeping conversation on how Matt got involved in left-wing politics, started publishing in various online media outlets, befriended Ben Burgess, and became a zero-book author, which eventually led him to collaborate online with Michael before his unfortunate and untimely death. In preparation for my conversation with Matt, I went back and reviewed roughly 13 of his online articles that I thought were very inspiring, constructive, and illuminating in where the left might go next. I'll post them in the show notes and would love to hear people's reflections and thoughts on them. In short, and no particular order, some of the subjects we touch upon are Richard Rorty, Cornell West, Roberto Ungor, Martin Heidegger, Soren Kierkegaard, Paul Tillich, Gergen Habermas, Slavoj Zizek, Modern Buddhism, the Religious Left, Christian Socialism, Postmodern Conservatism, Christian Fundamentalism, and some of the differences between Canadian and American political theory and philosophy. All subjects I plan on doing deep dives on eventually, and hopefully have him back on to explore along with many other guests. Finally, make sure you all keep an eye out for Matt's other work in the pipeline, but for now I'd like to plug his upcoming book, A How-To Guide to Cosmopolitan Socialism, dedicated to Michael Brooks, which will be released later this year. So cheers, and I hope you all enjoyed the conversation. Sweet. Well, thanks for coming on, Matt. I really appreciate it. Yeah, no problem. I mean, Michael had a big influence uh, on a lot of us, right? And he was a really inspiring figure that way. Uh, and I think for a lot of people, uh, he was a gateway uh, to more radical kinds of politics, uh, in part because he was very warm and personable, and in part because he had a real gift uh, for making complicated ideas and complicated geopolitical situations accessible uh, to ordinary people, right? Um, no, for sure, yeah. Everyone else, for that matter, as yeah. well. Right? No, but, and I guess that was kind of my question to you as a kind of kickoff question is, is like, how did you discover Michael and get introduced to his work? So I actually learned about Michael through Ben Burgess, right? Um, who, you know, some of you might know, uh, I partner with on a lot of different projects, right? Um, so I knew that my, Ben was Michael's friend. Uh, I met Ben back in, I guess it would have been the summer uh, of 2018 uh, when I asked him to come and give a little talk to my class virtually uh, at Tecla Monterey at the time. Uh, and, you know, then I looked him up and I noticed that he did a lot of different interviews and shows with Michael. Uh, and then I started kind of spending more time with him uh, over the, or Michael, over the course of a couple of years. Uh, we actually only ever got to chat once, sadly, uh, when I interviewed him for Zero Books about his book uh, Against the Web uh, and about this notion of cosmopolitan socialism that he was starting to develop. Uh, and it's really sad because I was hoping we were going to have a lot more conversations, uh, you know, he wasn't an old guy. Uh, he was very personable, really puts you at ease uh, when you're talking to him. Uh, and, you know, we had always talked about doing a little bit more together, you know, writing something, who knows, right? Uh, and then, of course, he died, sadly, uh, in 2020, uh, very suddenly uh, and unexpectedly. Uh, and, you know, to this day, I kind of regret the fact that we never got to do more things together. But his work was an inspiration to me, and I do cherish the fact that we got to have that chat. No, for sure. Yeah. I mean, and I mean, well, obviously I saw, you know, kind of the whole arc of your own kind of personal development, um, you know, in terms of writing and, you know, your kind of career kind of moving past your postdoc. Uh, so it's been really inspiring to go and watch 
you know, as a fellow Canadian, (laughs) see your, your writing develop and, you know, and move into that sphere and start to influence, you know, a lot of American discourse as well. So it's been really impressive. And so the cross, you know, fertilization as well. And the connection with Michael uh, has been really, you know, for me, uh, hopeful uh, because what I got from Michael, um, essentially, you know, like through your writing, obviously on the new right, and then obviously discovering his work, his trajectory, his intellectual trajectory is very similar to mine. I mean, he grew up in a sort of kind of hippie, uh, type, uh, family background yet, you know, face quite a bit of family challenges, I guess, in terms of, you know, one point or another, which is very similar to my own and stuff like that. But eventually he discovered Ken Wilber's work in integral theory, mm-hmm. Um, which is, you know, part of my own kind of, you know, development, I guess you can say kind of, you know, before, before going to university and stuff like that. So seeing his trajectory through that and, uh, you know, eventually parting ways with integral theory and the integral movement is something that I also experience a sort of disenchantment and falling away from that. Um, so, you know, like, and when he eventually started to talk about a new left or a new engaged left, if I go out and start using your term, um, I saw a lot of synergy between both of your thinking there in terms of, you know, where you guys were kind of moving towards this idea of cosmopolitan socialism. Um, so I guess, you know, to me, what did you, or what are you thinking when you're, uh, you know, you're thinking about the new engaged left and cosmopolitan socialism and where exactly does that kind of cross over with Michael's talk, you, you think? Well, look, there were a lot of different areas where I was inspired by Michael uh, and, you know, where I inadvertently came to the same kind of conclusions as he did uh, without encountering him. Right. Um, But I mean, I suppose there are three things that we can talk about. Right. Uh, One is the idea that the left does need to think uh, from a cosmopolitan perspective. Uh, And I think that there was this big temptation uh, when I was going to school uh, and when I was kind of getting involved in left circles to kind of stress particularism uh, and trying to deal with things exclusively at the local level. Uh, And this was justified theoretically and practically uh, as a kind of necessity uh, if you wanted to be on the left. And, you know, we can dive into some of those debates if you want. Uh, But I always thought that this was something of a mistake uh, in no small part because the systems that we're trying to challenge are global uh, in their scope and ambitions and power, right? Uh, and I know that Michael agreed with a lot of that, right? He would always stress the fact that just because you need to, fo- you want to focus on helping teachers in New York City uh, get justice because they get a better union contract, doesn't mean that you should be indifferent to what's going on in Brazil. You know, he wrote a lot about Lula and the administration there. Doesn't mean you should suddenly think that what happens in Iraq, uh, especially when the United States is involved there, doesn't matter to you at all. Uh, you, know, you need to kind of adopt this perspective. Uh, and that's something I've always been sympathetic to. The other thing uh, that I really liked about his work, uh, still do, uh, is again, the fact that he was unafraid to engage with conservative thinkers uh, very directly. Uh, as I'm sure a lot of your listeners know, Michael's first book was Against the Web, sadly his only book, uh, political book, I should say. He had another one on uh, spirituality. Uh, was against the web, which was kind of a critique uh, of uh, the IDW, uh, particularly people like Jordan Peterson, Ben Shapiro, uh, more controversially, Sam Harris, right? Uh, And he wasn't afraid of platforming them. He wasn't afraid of giving them undue attention. All these kind of arguments that people sometimes put forward for why we shouldn't engage the right. He just confidently said, look, our arguments are better. Their arguments are bad. Uh, And if it comes to an intellectual confrontation between us, we're the ones who are going to win. 
because our ideas will prevail in the end, right? Uh, and that kind of optimism and confidence was something that I always found really appealing, right? Uh, and I think it's the position that we should adopt on the left when it comes to engaging with the right. Uh, and I suppose the last thing uh, that he did that I really admired and still do uh, is that he wasn't afraid to be personable uh, when it came to how he talked to people, how he presented himself as a leftist. I think that there's this temptation sometimes to see ourselves as constantly under attack and so needing to always put up this kind of armor uh, of being confrontational, being antagonistic, uh, acting like we're under siege. And, you know, there are circumstances where that's appropriate. You know, I'm not saying that we should be sunny ways, to use Trudeau's phrase, you know, all the time, right? Uh, but the fact that he can come across just as an ordinary guy who liked to hang out, liked to talk about other things, had a diverse array of interests, you know, Lordy had a diverse array of interests, uh, and you felt like you got to know him when you were listening to him. All of that was something uh, that we could use on the left. So aesthetically, uh, I found a lot of the ways that he presented himself appealing. And personally, I just thought he seemed like a cool guy. Yeah, no, I mean, it, it, for sure. I mean, that's what, you know, once I started to listen to him and start to understand where he was coming from, um, and also, I guess, some of the same background in terms of some of the readings that he was doing, because exactly like you said, I mean, he did have a really broad sort of interest uh, beyond just the political. I mean, he moved really into some aspects of the religious, which I think is really interesting and something that you've written about uh, as well, you know, in terms of some of your new writings. I mean, my own kind of background is actually in religious studies. Mm -hmm. So once I saw you starting to go and drop people like Kierkegaard and, uh, you know, obviously, uh, um, Cornell West as well, just like uh, Michael and stuff like that, you know, it, it drew me in even more in terms of, uh, you know, interest. So I guess this is the other thing too, because you, you don't talk about that very much, I guess, on some of the other pods that you go on, or even when you're talking with Burgess and stuff like that, in terms of, I guess, kind of the religious, uh, the religious left, what the religious left could actually go out and bring, mm -hmm. um, you know, forward in this discourse as well, that Michael was not afraid to go and lean into and, and be inspired by it. Yeah, no, I should say here, Michael and I differ uh, a little bit. Uh, not in any kind of profound way, right? But Michael was always deeply attracted to uh, East Asian uh, forms of spirituality. Uh, he wrote about them quite consistently. Uh, and obviously he brought a lot of that perspective uh, to his outlook on life and his politics generally, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, I don't want to denigrate that in any way, shape or form, right? It obviously contributed a great deal to his understanding of the world and his personal satisfaction. Um, now, the kind of approach that I take when it comes to religion and the left just due to my background uh, is usually to fixate more on issues within Christianity, right? So uh, at the moment, uh, I'm a member of the Institute for Christian Socialism. Uh, I've written for them at several points and I actually lead uh, various discussion groups on Christian socialism um, for ICS, right? Uh, and the reason I choose to do that is just, you know, it's my background, uh, but also because uh, politically, I think that at the moment we're seeing a point where various forms of Christian authoritarianism, particularly Catholic authoritarianism, are becoming increasingly intellectually ascended uh, in the United States and elsewhere. Uh, not just Catholic, I should say, you can also see East Orthodox variants of Christianity becoming increasingly muscular, uh, as we can witness right now with uh, you know, the Russian invasion of Ukraine, right? Uh, and all these things are deeply concerning to me. Uh, so I think that as leftists, uh, we need to be able to respond to that by pointing out that this kind of authoritarian traditionalism that people associate with Christianity is deeply untrue uh, to the underpinning message of Jesus um, and other Christian figures, uh, and to restore the Christian left uh, 
to pride of place in its pantheon uh, by looking at people like Cornell West, Paul Tillich, Martin Luther King, uh, who was actually wrote his doctoral thesis on Paul Tillich. Uh, and so that's been a project that's been a concern to me for quite some time. In addition oh, for to sure, yeah. No, and more I mean, broadly that's... interested in secularization. Yeah. And I mean, that's why, I mean, your work is speaks to me. I mean, so like so clearly and so powerfully in terms of your writing and particularly your stuff around, I guess, postmodern conservatism uh, and how there's a deep sort of regressive pull within postmodern conservatism that drives or kind of almost regresses back to some sort of uh, fundamentalism. Um, but Michael as well seemed to be quite critical, I guess, in terms of the, the kind of sort of mech mindfulness, whether it be from the East Asian type stuff, because obviously mm -hmm. he gravitated much more towards Zizek. And I know Zizek has, you know, laid some pretty devastating sort of critiques against a sort of a fluffy spirituality. Um, but like you, I mean, Michael seemed to have, you know, much more critical uh, approach to religion or what it could actually go out and bring. Mm -hmm. Um, so that to me was definitely really super inspiring, uh, behind, uh, you know, uh, seeing your writing and both of his writing. Um, but the other thing too, that I want to go and talk to you about is I guess your ideas of the engaged left, uh, cause you've written quite a few pieces, uh, on the, the new engaged left with, uh, Galen Watts, um, uh, over at Arrow magazine. And I found those pieces to be super inspiring as well and almost fall you know, in it almost in tandem with Michael's thinking in terms of cosmopolitan socialism. So I was curious to hear maybe kind of some of your thinking on that and whether you see it, does it cross over? Does it breed into that same sort of thinking or how, where exactly are you on that now? Yeah, you know, maybe I'll be a little bit autobiographical here because uh, that helps explain where the articles came from. So the root of that article was actually because when I started kind of becoming public engaged, uh, I wrote a number of pieces for Quillette Magazine, right? For those of your listeners who don't know, Quillette Magazine is a pretty firmly IDW outlet. Um, now, the first of these was actually a piece on critical legal studies, uh, which was the tradition I came out of from my doctoral studies. Uh, and I just thought that the author got CLS really wrong, right? Uh, they kind of written a caricature of it instead of a full critique. So I went in and I defended the piece uh, and I got a huge amount of angry emails uh, from Quillette readers. But I also got a few emails from people who said, you know what, I actually think that maybe based upon your take on this, there might be more to this than I thought, right? Uh, sometimes it was kind of a begrudging, like, you know, even though I don't like it still, you know, maybe you have a point here or there kind of attitude. But I was like, okay, you know, it's a step, right? Uh, and so what I decided to do was to try to see if I could write for some of these conservative leaning outlets uh, to pitch left-wing ideas to them and do that successfully in a way that they would understand, right? Uh, and maybe they wouldn't like it and maybe they wouldn't agree with it. Uh, but at least, you know, I'd be getting the point across. Uh, and I did that for a little while. It had a fair bit of pushback uh, against it from some people on the left who were concerned that I was kind of legitimating or platforming uh, these outlets. And I appreciate those concerns. Uh, I think they were misguided and they're misguided for the reasons that I explained in the article, right? Which is that I do believe that if you actually articulate a cogent argument for left-wing ideas, uh, and you do so to an audience that will at least listen to you, you are more likely to win converts to your cause uh, than to lose them, right? Because uh, I ultimately think our ideas are the correct ones, uh, and that there's an intellectual tenability to them that you don't see on the political right. So why not be muscular and assertive in trying to stand up for our positions uh, in whatever kind of outlet, right? And I don't think that applies in all circumstances, right? I would never sit there and write for the Daily Storm or criticizing 
you know, Alfred Rosenberg or something like that, right? That'd be a step too far. But in these outlets where you're dealing with kind of moderate conservatives uh, who are open, at least in principle, to being swayed, uh, that's what I was hoping to achieve. And the Engage Lab piece was kind of a statement uh, to that effect. Which is very close to uh, Richard Rorty. I mean, because Richard Rorty, mm -hmm. in terms of some of his writing as well, I mean, he was very concerned about where the direction of the left was going yeah. and that it seemed, he almost seemed to be anticipating the, the vampire left through what he was, you know, seeing coming forward and that, you know, he needed to go out and take a much more democratic or engaged piece. And I was wondering if you were inspired by Rorty in terms of when you were thinking about that or writing that, because Rorty's had a pretty deep impact on me. Yeah, I mean, there's no doubt about that, right? Now, I should say that epistemologically, I don't agree with a lot of Rorty's standpoints, right? Um, so let's just get that off the table. But that book, Achieving Our Country, uh, or the other book he wrote, uh, Philosophy and Social Hope, both were deeply inspiring to me, right? Because mm. while I don't appreciate the kind of, I don't agree with the kind of anti-foundationalist liberalism uh, or social liberalism that he argues for, I do think uh, that achieving something like social liberalism in the United States would be a positive boon, not just for Americans, but for the world, right? Uh, and what I like is that Rorty was never afraid to argue for these positions in a very clear, precise uh, and down to earth kind of way for the most part, right? Uh, and he would say things like, look, if we want to actually attract people to the left, this is from achieving our country, why shouldn't we be doing things like they used to do in Dissent Magazine, right? Arguing for universal healthcare, arguing for better access to education, particularly for racialized minorities, arguing that maybe American imperialism isn't the best thing uh, and that we should be trying to uh, play a constructive and positive role in the world rather than exporting our viewpoints uh, through the barrel of a gun, right? Uh, these very concrete kind of issues. Uh, and Rorty also said, look, the problem is that that's not what a lot of left-wing theorists do right now, right? Uh, what they prefer to do is engage in these kind of opaque cultural disputes uh, about, you know, is Derrida or Deleuze uh, the way to go when it comes to doing literary analyses <laughs> of war and peace or whatever. And look, I'm not here to slam doing that because I think there's a place for it. And Rorty agreed that there was also. He pointed out that Fred Jameson's um, Postmodernity or the Cultural Logic of Red Capitalism was a brilliant book. And I agree, right? But you can't just be doing that exclusively. Uh, and I also think that he pointed out in the book that the fact that the left retreated to these kind of purely theoretical issues uh, was kind of a retreat politically, right? An acknowledgement that we had ceded the public sphere to a kind of centrist conservatism uh, and that there was no going back, right? Uh, I think that we shouldn't do that, right? I think we should try to claim the public sphere for our own and make left-wing views hegemonic wherever possible. I said that kind of tongue-in-cheek, but that's the idea. Uh, and I think he was correct that if we don't do that, then what we're going to see is people like Trump emerge or Trump-ish figures emerge. Yeah, and in he, which he actually went out and highlighted even in his own book, he thought that something that would be eventually vomited up and in the Trump sort of fashion, kind of almost like Fukuyama. Um, yeah, and I, I just want to say he was prophetic in that book uh, where about the middle of it, he says, if the left doesn't do this, then eventually conservatives are going to catch on that they should elect an authoritarian uh, who goes and says that he's going to save them from all these woke scolds uh, and put the liberal elites in their place, all while lowering taxes on the wealthy and uh, you know butchering uh, attempts to achieve racial and gender uh, and sexual equality in the United States. And once you know it, about uh, 20 years after he wrote that book, along comes Donald Trump. So I don't think you should usually buy into political prophecies um, because a lot of times people are wrong. 
but as it goes, Rorty was pretty on the number. Right? Yeah, no, no, for sure. No, and I just love his his idea of the the next left in terms of you know where where the left needs to go next. So I, you know, I draw inspiration from that, and I, I see you pushing very much in that direction, and I saw Michael pushing very much in that direction. So it gives me a lot of hope. Thanks. Um, I mean, it's I really appreciate that. I do. You know, like I think it's fantastic. Um, the other thing too is, I mean, since you do draw, I mean, like Michael, Michael had a lot of broad interests and stuff like that. I mean, mm-hmm. the other piece that I sent you that I want to go and t- hear you talk about is uh, Roberto Unger, obviously. Oh, yeah. Uh, since you're critical of pragmatism, uh, cause Cornell West is, I mean, he could in some ways fall into the pragmatist <laughs> sort of camp and so could Unger if I'm not mistaken. Uh, so I mean, I was curious to, to hear, you know, why why you were pulling on Unger as a possible sort of left inspiration that people can go out and drop on because his work is, it's it's. I mean, it's pretty out of this world. So I was hoping to get a few of your thoughts and reflections on that, and if you still think that. Sure, I, I should say I'm not opposed to pragmatism wholesale. One opposed to is the kind of hyper anti foundationalist pragmatism that Richard Borty put forward. Right. Gotcha. Uh, okay. I kind of label myself a cognitivist pragmatist. Uh, you know, I think that we throw in a little can't, a little bit of cognitive scientists, uh, science, uh, link that to semantic pragmatism, and we're more or less on the right track to where we got to go, right? Uh, so less uh, kind of anti-foundationalist uh, and, you know, radically skeptical as Rorty. But, but look, when it comes to the Unger point, I'll just be a little bit autobiographical again. Uh, I came to Unger, I guess in 2013 would have been where it was. Uh, and at the time I was doing my PhD at York University, really just starting actually. Uh, and our nickname for the school was Foucault U, right? It's a little unfair, but not entirely, right? So most of what I encountered was post-structuralist theory, right? And yeah. I have nothing really wrong with it. Uh, I have nothing bad to say about that. You know, I think there are a lot of insights you can glean from Foucault. But, you know, after reading this stuff day in and day out and day in and day out, you kind of do adopt a pretty pessimistic view on life, right? That, well, reform is necessary, but probably impossible because power is just, you know, ubiquitous, uh, coercive and disciplinary forms of power. Uh, and you should try to overcome them, but you're probably going to fail. Uh, or you might even make things worse, right? That was kind of the takeaway I had at the time. Yeah, I was in my early 20s, so it's pretty gloomy, right? Uh, and I wanted a kind of left-wing theory that was more constructive, more inspiring, and kind of offered a positive vision for the future. Uh, and that's what I found in Unger's work, right? Uh, where he really laid out this vast, uh, even epic uh, kind of theory for how things could be changed. Uh, gives it various different names over the course of his career, uh, radical democracy, super liberalism, uh, you know, empowered liberalism, uh, or sorry, empowered democracy, right? There's different labels for it. Um, but the fundamental essence of his work uh, is this idea that we need to follow Marx in recognizing that human society is constructed by human beings, uh, that it can be transformed in certain radical kinds of ways. Uh, and the idea that we've reached an end of history point uh, where we've exhausted all the potential possibilities uh, incumbent within human society and within human nature is just bogus. Uh, we can do a lot better than this. Uh, and his early work is all about trying to expose the false necessity that we live in a kind of settled society that can't be transformed uh, and to theorize on cracks in the social edifice that we can kind of lean into uh, that will allow us, allow us to open up uh, these new kinds of possibilities for human life. You know, mostly law, you know, since he was a critical legal theorist, but he kind of branches into other areas as well. Okay? Religion, and, in fact, too. I mean, some of yes. his other stuff. I mean, the one review, I mean, and I'm amazed as well in terms of all the stuff you've written for Marion West, but that one review 
uh, in Marion West where you cover his work, you know, that basically he, you know, he moves into the transdisciplinary, multidisciplinary sort of approach that, you know, could lay some pretty big criticisms against you if you veer in there and you're not very skillful at it. But I mean, he, he veers in there and he's willing to go out and bring in religion or some sort of metaphysical thinking or, you know, veer into stuff that most leftists would be quite questionable about, I guess. No, absolutely. I mean, there's no doubt that Unger was ever just going to become a legal theorist uh, or even, you know, a social critic, right? Uh, he has panorama of interest was vast, uh, seemingly inexhaustible. Uh, I mean, on top of the fact that, you know, he's done all this work on religion uh, and social theory and the philosophy of nature and time. Uh, he was also a minister in the Lula administration for a long period of time. So he's actually gotten pretty significant on ground political experience, right? Uh, you, know, you want to talk about a life well lived or living an interesting life, right? Uh, but I think that his major recent contribution to left theory that actually has been underappreciated uh, is this way of reconceiving the philosophy of nature and the philosophy of time. Uh, probably his most important book in that respect is one that he co-authored with Lee Smolin. Uh, Lee Smolin, for those of you who don't know, works at the Perimeter Institute at the University of Waterloo. Uh, he's a theoretical physicist. And they co-authored a book called The Singular Universe and the Reality of Time, right? Now, there are two ambitions in this book. Uh, one of them is arguing against M or multiple worlds theory, right? Um, that I won't get into too much, you know, unless people really are interested in it. Uh, but the way that Unger reconceptualizes time and nature and Smolin uh, is really foundational uh, because the argument that they make is that conservative scientists, rather like conservative individuals, are fixated on the idea that essentially the world is unchanging, right? That time is just the moving image of eternity uh, and nature and its laws remain constant. We just have to figure them out, right? Uh, and this obviously maps onto their vision of how the world should work, right? That more or less society should remain unchanging. The people at the bottom should remain at the bottom. People at the top should remain at the top and nothing fundamental should, all, should alter, right? Uh, and there are natural laws for this. Uh, and Smolin and Unger argued that in fact, it makes no sense to even talk about eternity, right? That eternity is a kind of antiquated uh, metaphysical concept. Instead, we should simply talk about what he calls the reality of time, right? The fact that everything uh, exists within time and so is constantly subject to change and transformation, right? Uh, and he gives an elaborate uh, scientific and uh, philosophical argument for that. Uh, and I think that's very interesting and very inspiring. Uh, now, he's not doing this in a vacuum. You can find antecedents to this uh, in the writings of people like Henri Bergson, for example, right, who's a big influence, uh, or Gilles Deleuze uh, and Philos Gattari, uh, except this work kind of systematizes this and uh, gives it a lot more of a kind of hard scientific um, kind of basis and justification. So mm -hmm. if people are really interested in looking at what I think his most foundational contribution will be, I really invite them to look at that book, which is magisterial uh, in its ambitions and its execution. Sweet. You no, know, and I mean, that's what I find so inspiring, too, about your work and what Michael was doing as well, right, is that you guys were not or you're not afraid to go out and dive in there and start talking about these larger uh, sort of not necessarily well, philosophical questions, but grounding them, you know, in some sort of deep meaning, right, that, that there needs to be a conversation on the left around meaning and larger questions of life that right now that the right or, you know, the new right or postmodern conservatives, you know, the way you you've gone out and described, they're kind of going out and monopolizing. So what, what, what do you think we would need to do to go and accomplish more of that or, or start to push those types of narratives and different sorts of outlets? Because that's something that's, 
not really prevalent. You know, something like a Jacobin that's not, <laughs> you know, like necessarily the, the go to spot that we go to. But somebody like Cornell West would go out and probably go out and veer into those types of conversations. And Michael was doing that. And I mean, in your writing, you seem to be doing that as well. What do you think we could do to to start to push that a lot more? Well, I think that a lot of what you're talking about is symptomatic uh, of the neoliberal era, but in a very particular way, right? Because starting in the 1980s, uh, what Wendy Brown calls left-wing melancholia became a very prevalent fact uh, in radical spaces uh, where there was really this belief that the left had lost, right? Uh, we'd achieved all that we were going to for the most part, right? There were still some struggles worth, worth fighting. Uh, and so there's really no need for these kind of big picture analyses any longer, right? Uh, all that was really left to us was to achieve justice in very local and particular kind of circumstances, right? Uh, and again, I'm not trying to dismiss uh, those efforts. And I think a lot of them have achieved a tremendous amount. Right, uh, particularly the efforts to achieve uh, sexual liberation for LGBTQ people, uh, anti-imperialist and anti-colonial efforts—you know, you name it. Right. Uh, however, I do think that there was a mistake uh, in assuming that there are no big struggles left uh, to confront. Right, uh, or that we can't improve the world for the better. Right, uh, and it seems increasingly like many people have adopted a very similar kind of perspective. Right, and I think that's one of the reasons. Michael's work became very popular, or you can see the popularity of people like Wendy Brown, like Slavoj Žižek, right, who offer offer these uh, big picture analyses, right, intellectually. But uh, why, see- why why do you frame it as a mistake, though? To me, it's almost like a question. Like we've always been talking about this on the left. I mean, like I've been inspired sure. by Habermas and by some of these thinkers as well. And I always feel that, you know, like they just like you're just not fully grasping or diving into the full depth of what the left has to offer, and that you know, like. I think it's kind of funny now that the new right or postmodern conservatives, you know, that all of a sudden they're just catching up with the particularities of what <laughs> postmodernism is. It's like, well, welcome to the club, guys. Like now you, we have a lot more to go and throw your way. No, no, absolutely. Right. Uh, now, I'm, I'm not trying to be disdainful uh, mm. of left theory from that point. I mean, I read a lot of it and I still read a lot of it. And, you know, I'm deeply inspired by it. What I'm talking more is about the kind of attitude towards social change uh, that's reflected in the theory. Uh, oh, and in the cactus that's inspired by the theory, right? Again, this idea that local struggles uh, are really the only way that we can actually achieve justice, right? And that trying to give big picture structural analyses of society that incorporates something like a philosophy of nature, incorporates something uh, like a philosophy of religion, uh, that's not what we should be doing, right? Uh, because there is this kind of radical skepticism that you see in various flavors of postmodern philosophy, right? Uh, and it's kind of offshoots. Uh, and again, or, crit- or just critical theory to core. I mean, yeah. critical theory falls into that like very cynical sort of framework eventually pretty quickly as well. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Uh, now, I'm not saying that, you know, we should never do that and that uh, there's something intrinsically wrong with it. But I do think it has its serious limitations, uh, particularly when it comes to the cultural moment that we're facing right now. Uh, and that's why I think it's a positive sign that people are gradually starting to move away to, from that towards more constructive big picture ways of analyzing things, right? Uh, now, how do we actually go about channeling these intellectual and cultural energies into movements for sincere political change uh, through something like democratic socialist mobilization uh, or you know mass efforts uh, to try to confront neoliberalism? That's not where my specialization is. You know, I'm kind of an academic and uh, you know, I'm not much of a political activist when it comes to on the ground stuff. Uh, I think that Megan Day uh, and Micah Utrecht have written a great book uh, on this subject called Bigger Than Bernie, 
Uh, and I have a review of that coming up for Aereo pretty soon. If people are interested, uh, I'd recommend picking that up because I think that you're not going to find better analysis uh, than what they provide, right? Sweet. Yeah, no, for sure. No, and I'm with you on that as well. I mean, like talking about things intellectually is not where, you know, the, 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 uh, you know, the rubber meets a road type idea. We need to be concrete and, and in terms of real social change and real impact on people's lives. And yeah. I mean, and Michael was great about that as well, right? I mean, he always went out and reframed it along those lines. How can we go out and have a massive impact for, 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 for everybody? Um, that's yeah, great. Absolutely. I just want to intersect because this is something that's close to my heart, right? I think there are two temptations that we need to avoid, right? Uh, there's the Heideggerian temptation, right? Uh, that you still see seeing people on the left fall into, uh, which holds that essentially ideas are what matter first and foremost. Uh, so if we win the battle of ideas, eventually we'll win the political confrontation, right? Uh, you know, if, if Heidegger's conceit that the whole history of the West is really just the story of its metaphysics uh, and the battles were really carried out by the philosophers who become the mouthpieces uh, for political movements um, before the political movements are even aware of it, right? This is a bit of a simplification, but yeah, there's this idea. Uh, and you do see people on the left sometimes adopt this view and they inflate the importance of academic efforts uh, and academic interventions for that reason. You know, I've been at conferences where people will just get into shouting matches at each other uh, over whether or not we should be Deleuzians or Hegelians. And you kind of <laughs> think to yourself, like, wow, this might be yeah. a great interest to you. I don't know that it's really going to fucking shake the uh, annals of the world, you know. On the other hand, I do think that there can be an activist temptation to assume that ideas really don't matter at all, right? That all we need uh, is you know, to get out there in the street to protest, uh, to be angry, and things will change. Uh, and I think that that is also wrong. And I think you saw expressions of why that's wrong throughout the course of the 1990s and the 2000s, where there were a lot of activist movements that tried to confront neoliberalism, try to confront the worst elements of globalization, uh, try to confront Wall Street. You think about the Occupy Wall Street. But the fact that there wasn't a clear theoretical alternative, a well worked out to what it was that we were criticizing, meant that a lot of times these gestures burned brightly for a little while and then they kind of fell away. Right. Uh, and it wasn't really until you saw things like the Bernie Sanders campaign uh, or the election of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez that we really started pushing for different alternatives that had a kind of plausibility to ordinary people. Right. Uh, and a lot of that has its roots in the fact that people started arguing for democratic socialism again, right, are thinking about alternatives to the status quo. Uh, and that's where I think theory can play a vital role. Uh, on top of doing what I do, and I like to think I play my own part, uh, which is criticizing shitty ideas from the political right and trying to explain why ours are better. I think that's useful also. So everyone has a part to play in this, and we need to avoid the temptation to assume that we shouldn't be theorists or that we must be theorists at all costs, right? A little bit of both is what's needed. The Aristotelian mean. No, for sure. Yeah. No, and I appreciate your segue into Heidegger as well, because that was another piece that I picked up on and that I sent your way that, okay. you know, you felt that and you pretty much summarize it, you know, right there that, I mean, that progressives or leftists should take Heidegger seriously, but not go out and lead in with that type of sort of ontological sort of thinking and stuff like that. Um, and I mean, I've been personally really influenced by Habermas and I mean, Habermas really just kind of avoids the whole kind of ontological question altogether. And it's all about action in a certain way. Um, well, communication and action, and maybe he's communicative action right? <laughs> <laughs> exactly yeah uh and but i, I guess this is the other thing too i mean because we've you know kind of gone back and forth a bit on twitter and stuff like that and i was wondering you know like how you feel about habermas today uh you know sort of along along with unger i'd be curious to see you know because you 
the impression I got from you online is basically like you can't stand them or you just feel that it's not particularly. No, no, not at all. I mean, I, I like Habermas a lot. I mean, look, it's a funny story, but this is just why I'm laughing. Right. So fucking I thought that the guy had retired. Uh, I thought, well, you know, he's done because I was asking myself, like, when was the last time a Habermas book come out? It came out I'm like probably 2012 or something like that. Right. <laughs> and I thought, well, he's got to be, you know, in his late 80s, you know, well deserved. Right. Uh, and then I found out that. And actually, I was kind of happy about this. This is the key point, because I was like, well, I've read most of his books now. And, you know, that's it. That's all I'll need to read. You know, uh, no more need to slog through these multi-volume epics. Uh, and then I found out that he's just published in German a 1,500-page history of philosophy that he's been working on for decades. And he calls, you know, his life's work. And I'm like, oh, crap. Yeah. <laughs> Back back to the multi-volume work, I suppose, whenever it gets translated into English. And I thought, like, well, you know, give the guy credit. He's been busy. You know, he didn't just decide he's going to go sit in the Alps, drink a beer and, uh, you know, enjoy the scenery. He's been very, very, very active. No, for sure. No, I, I was just slammed with Habermas. I mean, I joke around with friends and stuff like that. I mean, when I, you know, two of my professors were you know, big time into his work and his influence on religion and how they, you know, and theology as well. So I just got so, like, I'm, you know, they literally threw it at me at left, right, and center. And it it just put such a roadblock in front of me to go and try and wrestle with what was going on in religious studies at the time. Uh, that It just stuck. I mean, I can't stand reading him. He's a horrible read, uh, you know, and yes, when yeah. I share it with other people, people would just feel like, you know, like, why the hell would I go out and read through that it really is like ripping teeth um well i've always found the biggest problem i have with his writing is actually that he's almost too nice a guy it's the same problem i have sometimes reading rawls books you know i love rawls and i like habermas a lot right because if there's any argument that's made against them they have to deal with it at great length uh, and as generously as possible right and you see that throughout all his books right where so much of it is responding to critics fairly patiently systematically um and you really admire that because this is kind of living up to his philosophy right of dialogue democratic discourse um trying to be as fair to the other side as possible but as a reading exercise you're just like oh god man just get to the point right tell me what you want right what's the idea that you're getting at here right i appreciate that people have made these criticisms of communicative ethics you seem to be really I think you're probably right in that they didn't quite understand it, but like, just move on, move on. <laughs> no, for sure. Um, I guess it, this is, I say I that mean, with yeah. love. I, yeah. <laughs> if Habermas is listening to this, you know, that's no disrespect. I also kind of came up reading a lot of his works. I still have a lot of admiration for him. I'm yeah. definitely going to pick up to this too, another history of philosophy or this do a history of philosophy when it's translated. Right. So, you know, love. No, to the for guy. sure. <laughs> no, yeah, yeah, for sure. And I, I guess, is I mean, because we're talking a lot about the left, but we're always talking about the American left. Mm-hmm. And as two Canadians <laughs> uh, just kind of shooting the shit here, I mean, I'm, I'm curious to, to hear your thoughts on what you think the Canadian left should be doing or what Canadians should be doing in all of this. Because this is something that we don't really strategize uh, about or think about very uh, very much, I find, or particularly in the podcast sphere, you know, like uh, most of the time we just gravitate to what's going on south of the border. So I'd be curious to, to hear your thoughts on that and what Canadian thinkers have really had an impact on your thinking and still do today. Uh, well, there have been a number of them, actually. Uh, so, you know, I don't want to give you a list of all the kind of Canadian philosophers that I've been 
uh, inspired by. But uh, I do want to make a pitch for a very good book uh, by Andrew Jackson, The Fire and the Ashes, uh, Rekindling Democratic Socialism in Canada, uh, should be the subtitle, right? Oh, cool. uh, it just was recently uh, published. Uh, Jackson, for those of you who don't know, uh, is a longtime member of the labor movement in Canada. Uh, he teaches on um, labor economics uh, at an institution in Ontario, I can't quite remember, right? Uh, but he kind of chronicles uh, his life uh, on the Canadian left uh, at great length uh, and talks about what he thinks the NDP specifically should be doing uh, for the future. So great, great book if you're interested in these kinds of subject matters uh, from a Canadian standpoint, strongly endorsed by me. Uh, and the reason I bring that up is because I actually agree with a lot of Jackson's points uh, about the Canadian left, right? Um, I think that we have a left party in Canada uh, that has had viable electoral successes in the past, right? Um, and that gives us kind of an edge in some senses over the United States where there is no viable left party. We kind of have the DSA uh, and the left wing of the Democratic Party, uh, but neither of them has really gotten sufficient traction uh, to change policy in uh, the United States in a kind of viable way. Uh, whereas here, you know, we've had NDP governments before at the provincial level, never at the federal level, but came very close uh, in 2011 to 2015, right? Uh, and one of the arguments that he makes is that we can take the NDP uh, and try to push it in a more left direction, but we need to do so in a way that's cautious, uh, but ambitious along two fronts, right? Uh, one of those fronts is that we really need to commit the NDP to rebuilding the workers' movement in Canada. Because uh, he points out that just like in the United States, uh, since the advent of the 1980s, we've seen just a shattering uh, of the labor movement understood very broadly in Canadian circles. Uh, it's never quite recovered, uh, even under uh, various liberal governments. Uh, and unless you have that, it's going to be very difficult to have the civil society institutions that are necessary for broad scale economic change. Uh, now, how to go about doing that? Uh, he gives a bunch of different possibilities and we can discuss them, right? Uh, but the other thing that he brings up that I think is actually a trickier ideological problem where theory could actually play a role uh, is he points out that there's a substantial divide in some places between uh, a kind of socially liberal left um, that believes in things like inclusion, toleration, uh, rainbow coalition building, right? Um, we might call the woke left if you wanted to be pejorative, right? Uh, and Jackson says, you know, this is all important uh, and we should sideline it, uh, but it sometimes runs up against difficulties uh, when it comes to aligning uh, with the more working class movements uh, that were once the bread and butter of the NDP, because the reality is that a lot of these workers' movements uh, are extraordinarily progressive when it comes to economic issues, but don't necessarily adopt the same kind of standpoint when it comes to cultural issues or social issues, right? In fact, some of these groups can be pretty conservative uh, in that vein, right? Mm, yeah, uh, for sure. And but he says, you know, we need to find a way to reconcile these two things together. Uh, and I do think that is possible to do that. We just haven't hit the formula yet. Yeah. No, and I mean, a lot of the, I mean, the the sort of cultural issues that the U.S. obviously is facing, we're going out and facing it up here. But mm -hmm. I'm just always so annoyed how the, you know, the Canadian left is always overshadowed by what's going on in the States and the American left. I mean, like, <laughs> yeah. like Panitch, you know, and guys that you talk about, obviously McPherson and I mean, even some other great thinkers like uh, Harold Ennis and even conservative thinkers like George Grant. I mean, totally get overshadowed by what's going on in the U.S. And I mean, our, you know, philosophical sort of bedrock here in Canada is just as strong. And, I, you know, I'm always disappointed that podcast as podcasters. I mean, one of the goals, I guess, in terms of me starting my own podcast is to go out and push that narrative a bit more 
so like I'm happy to have you on and you know to to, to highlight that one that you are Canadian and that you draw a lot upon a lot it's of like the beer thinkers. commercial of Molson right I am Canadian <laughs> <laughs> but it's true though I mean even yeah, Panich yeah. like Leo Panich is like a huge influence on Jacobin and Baskar and a lot of uh, you know uh, left wing thinkers in the U.S. Uh, and yet he never really touted it or, you know, like in even just the school that you're from, York. I mean, York has been a real hub for left-wing thinking. Yeah, Panish was there. Yeah. Yeah. Until his death. Uh, so, no, I mean, I completely agree with you. I think that Canadian political philosophy uh, has always operated in the shadow, um, not just of the United States, I should say also Great Britain, right? Mm. So one way or another, we're always relegated to little brother status. Uh, and I do think that that's a shame in some ways because there are distinctive issues uh, that Canadians have, Canadian philosophers have brought to the fore that are of great interest, right? Uh, that usually aren't fixated upon uh, the same way that the issues that fixate uh, English uh, and American scholars are, right? Um, now, just a couple of examples would be uh, people like Charles Taylor and Will Kimmicka have done a tremendous job uh, of articulating a liberal, a left liberal argument for multiculturalism, right? And explaining what that would look like why that's foundational to the liberal tradition uh, and why it is that if they're actually consistent with our liberalism, uh, we need to adopt this kind of multicultural perspectives. And also grounding that in analyses of multicultural policies in Canada, their failures and successes, right? You very rarely see work of that kind of sophistication from an American uh, or an English audience, right? Where multiculturalism is understood in this extremely crude way, uh, if it's thought of at all, right? Mm. Uh, another kind of contribution that I think Canadian philosophers have made uh, that's quite insightful, uh, has been foregrounding the importance uh, of Indigenous peoples uh, to um, the kind of histories uh, and the architecture of North America, right? Well, John Rostin Saul, I mean, beautiful case in point of somebody that's been overshadowed by a lot of, you know, stuff that goes on. I mean, I'm a big fan of his work, and he's beautifully written about that as well. Yeah, exactly, right? Uh, and you know, you see a lot of good work uh, on this coming from out of the University of Victoria in particular, people like Abigail Eisenberg, for example, right? Uh, where they point out that indigenous philosophies and indigenous spiritualities are unique and distinctive in their own right. Uh, they bring a kind of distinctive perspective to political issues that's sometimes lacking in Anglo or French uh, theory. Uh, and they're trying to resurrect uh, or articulate that uh, to popularize these notions uh, for new generations of philosophers, right? I don't think you see anything comparable to that occurring uh, in the United States, uh, let alone in the United Kingdom, right? Uh, so I'm very proud of that, and I hope that we see more of it. In fact, I should be doing more of that myself, right? Kind of. Well, uh, no, but I mean, I'm just so happy that we managed to keep you a little longer in Canada. I mean, we were losing you internationally for a while. I mean, I was freaking out when I was... Well, I mean, I'm happy that you... You know, you got that international experience, but to see you come back home, I mean, you know, as a homegrown sort of uh, intellectual and public intellectual now, I mean, I really hope that we can manage to go and keep you here and, you know, give you the space to keep on doing the sort of writing that you've been doing. And I mean, because you've been plowing it out, man, it's impressive stuff that you've been doing. Well, thanks, buddy. I really appreciate that. And look, you know, I like Canada, right? You know, Canada's... (laughs) done a lot of horrible things over the course of its history uh, and that we need to be more attentive to, including to indigenous peoples and other people of color. Uh, and I think our economic system needs a lot of work, right? But, you know, a lot of people I love and care about are here in Canada. Uh, a lot of the cultural activities that I enjoy are here in Canada. Uh, I like Canadian music. I like Canadian philosophers, right? You know, I have a kind of 
home team uh, sensibility when it comes to these kind of things. Uh, and look, you know, I'm active in Canadian politics uh, also right now. I volunteered for the last election for the NDP. Uh, I think that I'm excited about seeing where it's going. Uh, I also, the party is going. Uh, I'm a little concerned about the emphasis exclusively on the leader uh, and the lack of kind of visionary policy alternatives put forward by the party, which, you know, we can talk about maybe at a later date. Um, but I do definitely think that there's a lot of interesting things that are going in, on in Canada that people don't talk about. And I think it's really important that people like you uh, are drawing attention to that or bringing attention to that from an international audience. Oh, for sure. And I mean, even what you guys are doing, I mean, like I joked around a bit in terms of, you know, your involvement with the, the pill pod and stuff like that. I mean, mm-hmm. like you guys are literally the the new, like kind of like uh, Toronto communications media folks, right? I mean, people that don't know about Ennis or Marshall McLuhan and all those thinkers that were coming up out of Toronto uh, are fantastic thinkers. I mean, I've been much more influenced by Harold Innes because of his whole emphasis on the idea of civilization and communication. And I just think he's a really overlooked sort of thinker and philosopher uh, in terms of, you know, that people just don't pay attention to. People always gravitate towards McLuhan. Not that I don't, you know, I don't have anything against McLuhan, but I mean, he's great. But I think the real genius is somebody like Harold Innes. And I have a huge, you know, appreciation for George Grant as well. I mean, George Grant, I think, really understood what was going on in Canada and the fact that we were or we are, I mean, you know, living next to the United States, right? And that we are being culturally absorbed into that media e- ecosystem and that we need to go and fight it off. So, you know, you know what you're doing with pills and, and some of the other podcasters that I see now going out there and just really railing against the sort of right-wing media that's been you know, flooding our airwaves. Uh, I think we really need to be touting as well, you know, our intellectual chops in terms of, you know, the schools, the, the you know, the, the thinkers that we currently have here and, you know, really push it out because I think we, we have a lot to be proud of. Oh, absolutely. And I mean, this goes both ways, right? I think that sometimes there's a bad tendency on the part of American conservatives, right? To assume that Canadian conservatism uh, is analogous uh, to American conservatism. Oh, shit, yeah. Deducible to yeah. American conservatism. <laughs> and the weird thing is sometimes the Canadian left will make that error as well, right? Uh, and assuming that when they're confronting the Conservative Party of Canada, they're just confronting the Republican Party light, you know what I mean? Or Republican yeah. Party north. Uh, and occasionally you see flourishes of that, you know, but it's really telling that Fox News North, as it was once called, uh, Sun News Media, uh, kind of had a brief flash in the pan moment uh, and then it disappeared, right? Because that kind of American conservatism has never really been organic to this country, uh, to use a kind of skewed metaphor, right? Yeah. Uh, what you see with Canadian conservatism and the kind of thing we need to confront as leftists is something quite different uh, than what we confront in the United States, right? Uh, there are strands of high Toryism embodied by figures like Grant uh, that it's very important to understand uh, and to criticize, right? Uh, especially because there's some intellectually robust defenses of them. Uh, another important tradition is the ordered liberty tradition uh, mm. that comes directly from England, right? Uh, that we need to confront and we need to understand. Uh, and then of course, in the province of Quebec, uh, there's very peculiar kinds of French conservatism uh, that draw a lot from the broader French tradition, but also are distinct uh, in the way that Quebec is distinct. Uh, and a lot of people struggle to understand those, um, particularly American conservatives, because a lot of American conservatives uh, are bewildered when they find out that French conservatives don't support something like the small state, for example, right? Or they support various kinds of social programs. Uh, and in order to understand that, of course, you need to know the history of French conservatism, which has always been more 
parochially minded uh, and nationally minded than individualist, right? Uh, now, on the flip side of thing, uh, and I guess we can just end here because I have to go out. I think that what you said about McPherson uh, in particular is really inspiring to me because to me, uh, McPherson has always been one of the philosophers that I most identify with in terms of arguing for a view that's broadly speaking concurrent with my own, right? Uh, I think his vision of a kind of liberal socialism or democratic liberal socialism uh, is really the route that we should be going for. Uh, and I think this idea that what we need to do as theorists is to kind of cut the possessive individualist strains out of liberalism and keep the emancipatory core is also a very inspiring and very interesting project. Uh, and it's sad that his work kind of disappeared from the radar uh, worldwide for a little while. Seems to be making a bit of a comeback because I see people referring to him more and more online. Uh, now I kind of play my own part in that, I think. Um, but I think his contribution was really seminal. And I really hope that more people take him seriously uh, and also appreciate that he was writing in the Canadian context and drew a lot of these inspirations for social liberalism or democratic socialism, liberalism from what was going on uh, with people uh, in the CCF or the NDP. Right. So yeah, rock on. No, I mean, that's another part of your, your writing now that I've seen, you know, popping up and more and more. And I, I just really appreciate that. And I mean, I'd love to have you back on to, to talk about that. And sure, I mean, because I mean, in terms of the podcast itself, I mean, I'm really hoping to like I'm inspired by what Michael obviously did. And, you know, in terms of the, a next left or a new engaged left. <laughs> but I think Canada has a unique role to go and play in all this and that our particularities need to be identified and talked about much more. Uh, and we just have so much talent, man. I mean, there's so much stuff going on that we, you know, it just doesn't get publicized. So if I can go and help push that narrative and you know, obviously keep pushing your work and everybody else that's doing some amazing stuff. I mean, uh, you know, keep it going. I'm super impressed and I'm super hopeful that, you know, by seeing, you know, a crew like you guys come up and it really railing out there and doing some amazing work. Well, I'll tell the others, they'll be really happy to hear that because, uh, you know, we all, like you said, live in Toronto, uh, you know, grew up in the country and I know Eric and the others will appreciate the fact that, uh, you know, you like what we're doing. Because that was one of the goals, right? To kind of give a, a bit of a, you know, Toronto Canadian kind of vibe on things, do things our own way, right? Not to just become another American podcast. No, no doubt. And kidnap Burgess and keep him in Toronto, man. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> just tell him to give up on that project south of the border. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Super. Well, look, it was really great talking to you, dude. And yeah, I'm happy to come by uh, some other time, talk with person or whatever it happens to be. But, you know, keep on trucking with what you're doing. Uh, I really like it. And I really hope that it's a big success. Okay. And oh, I appreciate it. You too, you man. Keep up so the so much work. for all the work that you've, that you've done. And thank you so much for supporting my work from the very beginning. I really appreciate that. Well, it's been amazing to watch. Peace, bud. Take Peace. it easy. Bye-bye. Ciao.